I read a story concerning a, a, a mom. She, she referenced this particular verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. About being seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I was thinking that, man, okay, maybe she gets it. And she begins to tell her story in a blog that I was reading. And she said this, she says, I knew Jesus. And, and, and she made a reference to how this verse radically changed her life. And she said, I knew Jesus, I loved Jesus, I worshiped and served him, I read my Bible. And this describes a lot, a lot, a lot of believers today. I read my Bible, studied Christian concepts, kept a detailed prayer journal, shared my faith, met regularly regularly with other Christians in church in small group Bible studies, worked for my community in various ways. I was the mom listening to Christian music or the dad listening to Christian music in the kitchen, teaching Bible verses to my children, rejoicing over what a great God I serve. I love my husband, or if you are a husband, you love your wife, and our two beautiful elementary school-aged children. Love your children. She says, I blogged daily and wrote novels. Life often felt full and blessed, but something, she says, was missing. There was something in her life that was missing that left her unfulfilled. What was missing, in short, I'll give you the short of the, the blog. This lady, she felt, well, she goes on in her blog to describe how despite all of her achievements, all of her accolades and ministry activity, she had always felt unaccepted by the Lord. That was her hangup. Something was missing. She was trying to fill her life with all these other things, all of these different achievements, PhDs, and writing all these different books, and, and people having given her all kind of accolades and, and all of this ministry activity, but yet she felt unaccepted by the Lord until she read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. He has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Her conclusion was her explosion of gratitude and thankfulness of being in, of the inclusion and intimacy for having a place at the table with Jesus. That's beautiful. It really is. But I thought that this lady was going to go on to say something else. I thought she was going to really grasp the, the, the deeper depths of this same passage as we've been going over. I, I, I realize that she gets it, but she didn't fully get it. She didn't get all of it. And yes, it is about inclusion and it is about intimacy, but let us not pass over this truth as well. It is about you and I partnering with, sharing the principality and authority of Jesus himself. That's what that verse is deeply about. It is about how God has, out of his own wisdom and sovereignty, chosen you and I to participate with him, to have a share in his principality power and in his authority, to rule and to reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's God. 
He, he made that decision. He chose you. He chose me. He did that himself. But the enemy wants to delude your mind so that you don't come full circle with the understanding of your true identity in Christ Jesus. He wants to delude you. He don't want you to think like that because you begin to think like that. Now you become a real threat and a danger to the kingdom of darkness. When you start walking in, 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 in the knowledge and understanding of your place of principality, of your place and position of authority, when you start understanding that, that you have been elevated and raised up in Christ Jesus above all power, that means that Satan is below you. Hello? Hallelujah. Satan is below you. Every dark demon is below you has nothing on you because you have been raised up with Christ Jesus and seated in heavenly places with him. Far above, far above. There's a big separation between you and your enemy, between you and every demon that opposes you. A big separation. But the enemy doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to grasp that and understand that and begin to walk in that knowledge. You see, the Bible tells us that my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. One thing you can count from me, I don't make too many guarantees, but I can guarantee you this. I'm going to stand here and tell you the truth. I'm going to break down the scriptures God has gifted me to be able to do so, so that you can understand it, so that you can grab it and grab hold of it and actually put it in practice in your life. I'm going to make it as simple and plain as I can because that's what it takes for me. He doesn't want you to know this. But wow, God has given you amazing, divine power. The third plot of the enemy is to gain dominion rights to rule over your inheritance. Let's go back to this temptation of Jesus Christ. But instead of Matthew, we're going to go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, he gives us a, a, a different vantage point, perspective, angle to look at the temptation of Jesus Christ from. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Here we go. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all of this dominion and its glory. For it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and Jesus answered and said to him it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and when the devil had finished every temptation he left him until an opportune time time and Jesus returned to Galilee 
in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout through all the surrounding district. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. The third plot of the enemy is to gain dominion rights to rule over your inheritance. In verses two through three, in both accounts, it talks about how Jesus fasted for 40 days. He didn't eat anything. And after that, he was, he was hungry. The man probably was starving. Wanted something to eat seriously bad. But the enemy, he didn't care. He would come to him at this time. And it tells us a, a few things about the enemy. That he is merciless. He is ruthless. He is persistent. But he's also intelligent. In his assault against the man or woman of God. Who seeks to be about the father's business. Though the enemy is ruthless, he is merciless, he is persistent, he is intelligent. Not one time did Jesus show any evidence of fear. Did you guys notice that? Not one time did he show that he was afraid of the enemy. Not even a quiver. We can learn something from our enemies. We definitely can learn something. I think there's something to be learned here in, in the way that the, the enemy works. As far as being merciless, ruthless, and persistent but especially about being intelligent. We have to be merciless when we're dealing with the enemy. We have to be ruthless when we're dealing with the enemy. We have to be persistent, but we need to learn how to fight intelligently in our counterattacks and offensive engagement of the enemy. Too many men and women are being destroyed, again, because of a lack of knowledge and understanding. And so they're going out there unintelligently and they're being overrun and ransacked by the enemy. They're being driven back into fear by the enemy. We need to learn as Jesus did. We keep binding and beating the, the enemy with the sword of the spirit. We keep firing back at the enemy with the arrows of God, the fiery arrows of the Lord, which is his word as well. <coughs> In verse 6, Notice verse 6 here in Luke chapter 4. The devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been given to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. How many know that the devil does not have sovereign power? <coughs> he doesn't have sovereign power. But he does have sanctioned power. There's a difference. Sanctioned power means that he only has the power that has been allowed, afforded, or approved by who? One God. But beyond that is you and I. The devil only has sanctioned power. That is power and authority that has been afforded him, allotted to him, and approved for him to use an exercise by someone else. You see, he says, this dominion has been given to me. He has no power in and of himself. Only that which is given to him. The problem and the, and, and the truth is that many of God's people has given him sanctioned power to rule and to operate in their lives. When did this happen? 
Well, initially it happened way back at the fall, beginning with mankind. God sent man here. He created man and he gave man the responsibility to rule and to reign and to have dominion over all the earth and everything that creeps in the earth. The enemy came over in chapter three of the book of Genesis and he deceived mankind and mankind essentially gave over the rulership, dominion and power to the enemy. Now God is still the sovereign Lord of all the earth, but the devil himself has sanctioned power to rule and to reign as he says over the kingdoms of the earth. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says, God describes Satan as a God. He says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. First John chapter five, verse 19. Here's what John says. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This whole world lies under the control of the evil one, which is Satan. There's other scriptures that speak of the sovereign power of God. I have those if you would like them, but I do have those. But nonetheless, we, what I really want you to see is that, and what the Spirit is showing us here, is that the enemy, he does not have any power in and over your life, except the sanctioned power that you give him. He is not sovereign. He, just, he doesn't just have power in and of himself. He doesn't have the power and the authority to rule, to reign, to operate in your life, to stand in the doorway of your home, to deny you the promises of God. He doesn't have that unless you give it to him, unless you hand it over. But don't be deceived. We need to understand the only power control or domineering influence Satan or any devil can have in your life is that which you give him primarily through sinful, sensual acts, through disobedience, through speaking words of death and unbelief, through doubt, through denial of the truth, through hope, holding on to hate, hurt, and unforgiveness. Those are some of the key areas and ways that the enemy gain ground, take control, acquire sanctioned power in the life of a believer is when we give it to him. And the way we give it to him again is primarily through sinful, sensual acts, doing those things that appeal to and satisfy and gratify your flesh, whether you're looking at something, whether you're entertaining something, whether you are, whatever it is. Go to the book of Galatians. It talks all about those, the acts of the flesh. Disobedience. Just, just outright disobedience when it comes to God's word. Oh, but nobody knows. Oh, it's just a little thing. Yeah, it's a little thing that gives great access to the enemy to rule in your life. Speaking words of unbelief. Words of death. Not being mindful of the words that are coming out of our mouth, the enemy can get a foothold in your life. Living with a mind of doubt or being double-minded, denial of the truth, holding on to hate, hurt, and unforgiveness. When you do those things, and there are so many others, but these are some of the main ones by which the enemy 
acquires sanctioned power. And whose fault is it? Yours. Yours, mine. When we do these things. We're giving him that authorization. We're giving him that power. But we can take it back. You can always take it back. Satan and every dark spirit seeks to seeks to sanction power in and over our lives by getting you to hand it over to him. So how do we break the controlling grip of Satan? By living a life of obedience. By speaking things that are right, wholesome and true. By living in faith, walking in faith, speaking words of faith. By letting go the hate, letting go the hurt, releasing that person who offended you, releasing forgiveness to them, extending and showing love continually. That's how you break the grip of the enemy, his sanctioned power over your life. Ultimately, in verse 14 of uh, Luke chapter 4, it says that how Jesus came walking. He came in the power of the Spirit. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Ultimately, the very thing that Satan was trying to avoid actually came to pass. Here, Jesus returns walking in kingdom power and authority in the Spirit. A lot of times we like to focus on how this is the beginning or the launching of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we kind of, you know, camp out right there and talk about the outbreak of Jesus' ministry here, but really this, what this is really about and what this whole episode is really about, the, the big picture, this is about the beginning of Jesus taking back dominion, taking back principality and authority. This is about the demonstration of the manifestation of God's kingdom to rule and reign over every realm of influence. This is about Jesus taking back that which our forefather, Adam, gave to the enemy. Dominion, rule, reign over every realm of influence in this earth. We were created for that. Jesus did all of this, and, and the Holy Spirit gives us an open window into the life of Jesus, dealing with this devil and the temptations so that we can see how we too must deal with those devils and those demons and sin and the, and the lust of our own flesh but most especially of how we take back this place and position of kingdom principality and power and authority that he's given us it's only through Jesus Christ it's only through him. He gave it back to us. When he says all power and authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. He gave it back to us when he seated us in heavenly places. In him far above all rule all power, all principality, and all dominion. He did it 
so that you can bring, you can have the power that you need in order to bring your life into alignment with God's true assignment for your life. It begins, as I said earlier, with a denial, a constant denial of self, selfish pursuits, selfish aspirations. We have to deny those things. Thank God that he denied himself, the Lord Jesus, and suffered the death of the cross on our behalf. Thank God that he did those things. Because if he hadn't, then he would have never invaded the enemy's camp down in that dungeon, in that den we call hell. And disarmed the powers and principalities of darkness. Thank God. Thank you, the Lord Jesus, that he denied himself. And he did those things for you and I. May it not be for nothing. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25 says, Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? To go through life and never discover your true assignment and purpose in God. Here in this verses that I just read, there's a secret to fulfilling your life's assignment. It is the same requirement in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The secret to fulfilling, to discovering, first of all, and fulfilling your assignment in Jesus Christ is a life of continual denial of selfish ambitions and aspirations. Jesus says, unless you deny yourself, you cannot be my disciple. That's the secret to it. But that is the very thing nobody wants to do deny themselves of their own personal ambitions, personal and selfish aspirations. The word selfish is, is better than just personal because selfish means that nobody gets any pleasure out of it except you. Except you. It does nothing more than, than incite your own fleshly appetites. So that's a better word. Because we all have personal dreams and wants and desires. But when it's selfish, and it's fully concentrated on you, then it's not about God. It's not about exalting Christ. It's not about bringing glory to the Lord. It's about bringing glory to you, honor to you, a name for you. And that's not, that's not what we're called to do. So the secret to fulfilling your life's assignment is the same requirement in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a life of continual denial of selfish ambitions and selfish aspirations. The second thing here, when it comes to the enemy's plot, the enemy's plot is a delusion of your true identity. 
His plot is to delude your understanding of who you truly are in Christ Jesus. So that you never fully embrace not only God's promises, but this is important, but also that place, that position that you are in even right now in Christ Jesus. So we're going to talk about some things rather quickly here and just for a little bit of length of time. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 6. That is the verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. There are some things here that we must understand as believers if we are to live and walk in victory. The book of Ephesians is all about the Christian life being lived out. How to live in victory as a believer of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's slow down just a little bit. I'm, I'm gonna make sure you got that. I'm gonna I'm gonna pour into this. I'm gonna break it down. But here, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Church of Ephesus is letting them know: Yes, it is by grace you have been saved. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's good news by grace. I don't. I don't. There's nothing I can do to deserve it. I can't earn it, but yet his grace, his gift, he's gifted me. He's shown me favor, undeserved favor, and he's extended salvation to me. Thank you, Lord, because I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do to merit it. I can't even attract it my way because there's, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. No way, no how. But by his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, he brings salvation unto me. Thank you, Lord. But then he goes on and he does something even more. He raises us up together and raised us up, verse 6, and raised us up with him, with Christ Jesus. The word raised there, really the, a better word would be the word resurrected. He's re in, in the same way that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, we too have been resurrected with him in Christ Jesus. Remember, your old man, when you receive Christ and come to Christ, that old person dies. And the new person is born again, is resurrected in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has seated us in heavenly places. What's in your mind right now when someone says that you have been seated? What do you see in your mind? Talk to me. See a table with Jesus and myself right there sitting. Okay. You see a table? Is that what you see? Do you see yourself being seated? What do you see? Hey, she want to be in a real comfortable chair. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, don't go to sleep, sister. <laughs> don't, don't, don't start seeing futons and recliners and everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely don't. But, but you see yourself being seated in the presence of Jesus Christ, our King. Right? Seated with Him. With Him in heavenly places. Get that now. You are with Him in heavenly places. Turn over Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to your left, Ephesians chapter 1. And real quick, if you have to turn to your left, it might be at the top like mine is. But nonetheless, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 20. Verse 20 says, Which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead, the word raising, resurrecting, raising him from the dead, and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is what Jesus Christ is seated. Where is he seated at? At the right hand of God in heavenly places, in the heavenly realm, in heavenly places, but not just in heavenly places, far above, far above, far above, far above, I'm repeating for emphasis, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. I think we had a little, little um, lesson this morning on the word all, but far above all rule, all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come so if 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 we are seated with christ and christ is seated in heavenly places where are you seated at if you are seated with christ and the bible says that christ is seated in heavenly places far above all rule Far above all power, all authority, all dominion. If you are seated with Christ, it's not a trick question. You are seated with Christ. And Christ is seated in heavenly places. Where are you seated at? In heavenly places. Where? Far above all rule, all power all authority and all dominion above any above every single thing and everything it says far above those things we're way way past all of that now here's what you got to imagine for a moment you got your spiritual imagination going okay here we go imagine this just for a moment you receive a call, you're, you're in your home, wherever you're at, and you're walking along and you get a phone call, and it's a call from the White House. There's a White House official on the line, and on the, on the other end is POTUS. You know what POTUS is, right? President of the United States, that's what it stands for. On the, this White House official, he calls and says, hey, hello? Yes, sir, is this Edward? Mr. Edward Torres? Uh, yes. Yes, this is the White House official. I have the president on the other end, and he would like to speak to you. And you're like, what? Is this a joke? And, and, and all of a sudden, the president, he comes on the line. And you recognize his voice. Why? Because you've heard him speak on national television. That's how you know it's him. And he's speaking, and he's telling you, Mr. Edward Torres? Yes. Well, I'm calling because I have an urgent matter. And we've been doing some research on you. And you're the only one who is qualified, dignified, and authorized to be able to do what we need you to do. 
I need you to come to the White House. I have an office adjacent to my office, the Oval Office, and it's ready for you. Can you come? Can you come? Simone? What is that, sir? <laughs> he says, yes, right? And as soon as you hang up the phone, I'll knock at the door. Wow, somebody's at the door already? That was quick. You open the door, and guess what? These guys are all dressed in black. They got a nice Cadillac outside. Mr. Torres? Yes? Come follow us. We're going to take it to the White House. They take it to the airport. They put you on a nice jet, the president's jet, and they fly you to the White House. And there you are, and you have your office adjacent to the Oval Office. And the president comes in, shakes your hand, and he tells you, thank you for coming. From this moment forward, you have all power and authority, even as I have. No one, no one will be higher than you except for me. Thank you for coming. How would you feel? How would you, how, think about it. How would you feel? Man, you could get your chest in fast enough. You'll just be all out there like that, like, I'm the man, I'm the man, I am the man. That's me right here, right here, right here. I'm the guy. Woo! Put your hands, man. Your head gets so big, you start floating. <laughs> right? <laughs> Cause, yeah, because you've been what? Placed far above. Far above. That's just a little example of being placed in a position and in a place of power and authority that surpasses the power and authority of the land in which you live. But see, there's even a greater, even a bigger, greater, and, and much more glorious one than the king, the president, the prime minister, or any principality. And he has invested in you, he has invited you, and he has entrusted you not to come sit in some adjacent office, okay? Some office that's next to his office. But no, the Bible says that he has invited you, he's invested in you, and he's entrusted you to sit at the same table with him. He is seated at the right hand of God, a place of power and authority, principality. And he said, you have a seat right here next to me. You sit here with me, and you sit here with me, and you sit here with me. I want you to be right here. And it's not about your power that you will exude. It's about the power that comes from the throne of God itself. It is the power that is behind you, the reason why you can leave here today and walk in power and walk in the authority of God and, and begin to renounce those things that are standing in the doorway of your home and rebuke the enemy and know that he has to leave and he's going to leave. The only reason you can do that because you know the power that is behind you. You know the power that lives on the inside of you. You've been placed in that position. That is the seat that has your name on it. And it belongs to you. Amen. A deeper truth, truth is this, is that that same enemy that you have power over already, remember, you've been seated in a place, in a position of principality and authority far above, far above any other powers in the heavenly realm. But that same enemy 
will try to delude you. Fill your mind with false thoughts concerning your true identity in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to grasp who you truly are in Christ Jesus. Listen close. You. You have to say this for yourself. I want to encourage you, point at yourself and say, I have been seated in Christ in a position of intimacy, principality, and authority far above all and any opposing forces. Now think about that. Let that sink in. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going. Verses 1 through 11. Some of us here, I'm pretty sure, we're familiar with this passage, but we're going to look at it today with a, with a new set of eyes, under a new lens, from a different perspective, that maybe you have not looked at it from this way before, but today we're going to see what, what the Holy Spirit is, is showing us here. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so, Father, as we look into the light of your word during our time together, I ask that Holy Spirit, may you speak. May you teach us. May you guide us into all truth. May you open our ears, the eyes of our understanding. Help us to know and to understand what is your spirit saying to us here as a church today. And so, Lord, you be glorified. And Jesus, may you be exalted through the teaching. And you may you bless me, my God, that I may decrease, that you may receive all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here, one of the things that we definitely see is how we are to wield the word of God in order that we may weather the storm of the temptation of sin and the attacks of Satan. That's the first thing. We're very familiar with that with this teaching and this understanding that looking at the life of Jesus and how he, his interaction with the devil, the devil coming to tempt him, 
coming to try to drag him into sin, get him to even commit suicide. We see how Jesus combated the enemy. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds that is using, taking every thought captive that presents itself against the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. Using the word of God. Using the word of God. It's important that we learn how to wield and use the word of God in order to weather the storm of the attacks of Satan and even the temptations of sin. That we get. We get that. But there's, there's more that's here as well. The other thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to see and understand is that this whole episode, in this whole episode, it exposes the enemy's plot so that he will not prevail over the lives of the man or woman of God who dares to walk in the authority of God. This window that God gives us to be able to look into the life of Jesus and see how he deals with sin, how he deals with Satan, how he even denies himself. It is a window that exposes the enemy's plot so that he will not prevail over the man or woman of God who dares to walk in the power and the authority that God has given him. It exposes the plot of the enemy so that the enemy will not prevail over that brother or sister, that mother or father, who dares to walk in obedience to God's word. You see, Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. And so the Holy Spirit gives us an open window to see how Jesus deals with sin. You know, wouldn't it be nice if you could ask him, Lord, how do you deal with sin? How did you do it? Lord, Lord, Lord how did you overcome the, you know, the devil all those years, throughout the 33 years that you was here in this fight? Well, he's telling us right here. He's showing us right here. It's, a, it's an expose. It's an open window. It's a, it's a look you know, where we can peek into and see. I get the question a lot. How, how do you do this? And how do you overcome that? And how do you avoid this? And, and, and how do you break the enemy's grip? And, 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 and how do you put guilt to sleep? And, and all these other things. Well, right here, we have an open window to it. The enemy's plot is threefold. The first one is this. He has a plot to distract you by inciting your fleshly appetites. He told Jesus if, well, the Bible says that he was hungry after 40 days of fasting. I don't know about you, but I'll probably be thirsty. More than hungry. Typically, according to science and, 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 and the world of medicine, when a person fasts for that long, you are first of all thirsty. That's what you are. More than anything else, you're thirsty. Which tells us, in a way, and I believe there's a lot of, you can make a case for it, and this is not that important, but it is very possible that Jesus was fasting from food, but he probably had something to drink, maybe very little water from a stream or a brook because he was in the wilderness. But nonetheless, that's just some, some things that I be thinking about. 
But the enemy's plot, number one, is to distract you by inciting your fleshly appetites. He asked Jesus to turn this stone into bread because he knew that Jesus was hungry. So the first thing he does is try to incite Jesus's appetite of his flesh, of his body. The point is more than he's just trying to get Jesus to eat a piece of bread and sin against God. It has a lot more to do with that. Than, than that itself. In fact, if he could get Jesus to turn the bread, turn the stone into bread, essentially his aim is to derail the Lord from his alignment with God's true assignment for his life. And that's his whole objective for us as well. When the enemy comes and he gets you to just concentrate on your fleshly appetites, Fulfilling your, your own fleshly desires is aimed at derailing you from ever aligning your life with God's true assignment for you. Fleshly appetites. Now, here's the thing. Fleshly appetites is anything that appeals to your flesh, makes you feel good, satisfies you, gratifies you, brings you pleasure, brings you joy. Fleshly appetites. Those things that do such are not necessarily in and of themselves bad all the time. Turn over to the book of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. We're coming back to Matthew, don't worry. Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells us of a parable here. Verses 16 through 21. Jesus tells them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepare? So is the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. This one is pretty clear. When you have a life that's concentrated, on storing up treasure, earthly treasure, that does nothing more than appeal to your flesh. It, it, it appeases your fleshly appetites. There's nothing wrong with, with earning money and accumulating wealth and retiring well in life. But this man's, his whole life was given to that. His whole life was given to that. This was the enemy's trick to derail him from his true assignment, from aligning himself with God's true assignment for his life. So many today are caught up in the same thing. They are chasing riches and wealth and prosperity and all these different things. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, God wants us to be blessed. He calls us to prosper and to be prosperous in the endeavors that we do. He, he calls us to be wise. Because with wisdom, 
comes knowledge and understanding of how to use the monies that he's entrusted to you. And he who is faithful in a little shall be given much. You know, so as we manage that little that God gives us, he gives us more. So yes, God wants us to be blessed monetarily. There's riches laid up for us also in Christ Jesus. Jesus promised Peter, he says, truly I tell you, those who have left father or mother or houses or lands for my sake and the gospel shall surely be rewarded in this life. In this life. The reward is for you and in the life to come. But what's going on here? This guy, his whole concentration was riches and wealth for his own personal benefit and pleasure, which derailed him from aligning his life with his true assignment. There's another example. Over in chapter 10 of the book of Luke, 38 through 42. Just turn to the left in your Bible and you'll be there. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This is a story concerning Martha and Mary. Verse 38. Now as they were traveling alone, he entered a village and a woman named Martha. She welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who was also seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted. If you have a real Bible, right? Underline that. If you have a, a different type of Bible that's on a tablet, highlight that word, distracted. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus says only one thing is necessary. He's talking to Martha. He's, Martha is, is trying to do nothing more than do what? What is she trying to do, guys? Serve him. She's trying to serve him. She's trying to be a hospitable hostess. She's trying to make sure that the guys, they come in from walking along the road. It's probably hot. I don't know the time of the year, but I do know that they're probably thirsty. They might be a little bit hungry. They can use a bite to eat. And I know every single lady in here, even the guys included, if someone comes to your house, you're going to offer them something. Something, even if it's toilet paper because they got to use the bathroom, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'm just trying to see if you're paying attention, okay, everybody tracking? All right, good stuff, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, here they are, and she's just simply trying to serve Jesus and his disciples, she's ministering is what she's doing, she's ministering to God's people, she's ministering. But the Bible says it's a distraction. It's a distraction. How can ministry be a distraction? It can be a distraction when it incites your own fleshly appetites and derail you from aligning yourself with God's true assignment for your life. When, when you ministry does nothing more than make you feel good, it does nothing more than make you happy and proud. 
Because you were able to go out and lay hands on a few people and pray for them. And they got all excited in their spirit. And maybe they fell down. I don't know. But whatever it may have been, you, you were able to sing a song. And that person was just elated when you were singing. But it made you proud. It made you happy. It made you feel like, okay, you know, you're doing a little something. But really, it did nothing more than incite your own fleshly appetites for gratification. When serving does that, it derails you from your true assignment in God. Probably one of the worst things that could happen to a person, when you think about the man, the parable of the rich fool, right? The man who laid up all of his wealth and said he's just gonna take his ease and he's just gonna cruise on into his golden years, and then all of a sudden God says, you fool. Tonight, your life is your soul is required of you. That was his last night. And probably one of the worst things that could ever happen to a person born in this life would be to live a full life, yet never discover their true purpose or assignment of why you were brought into this world and never embark on the journey to live it out. To me, that's the worst. To go through all of life. That was one of the things that I did not want to do. Early on, when I was about 20 years old, I started thinking this way. What is life really about? I want to make sure that I do what I've been sent here to do. I don't know what it is at that time at 20 years old. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I wanted to find out. The worst thing would be to go through life, enjoy a, a, a full life, if you will, on the, on the standards of the world, but yet... Never discover your true assignment or purpose. And even beyond that, never embark on the journey to live it out. That's the worst thing. To show up day after day in this life, but never really enter into your true assignment and purpose by God. Never really discover what is it you've been sent here for. Why were you born into this life? One of the things I hope and I pray for every single person here today, and those who might be listening in as we're recording this, that you take the time, seek God to discover what is my assignment? What is my purpose, God? You said in your word that you have recreated me in Christ Jesus to do good works. Lord, what are those good works? What is that assignment that you have created me for? and recreated me in Christ to fulfill. Lord, you said in your word that you know the plans that you have concerning me. Plans not to harm me, but plans for my benefit and for my good to bring me a future and a hope. Lord, what are those plans? Make it clear, God. Make it plain. Make it simple so that even I could understand it. So that I can grab it.